One year into the war in Ukraine, the U.S. government has committed $100 billion to this bloody proxy conflict that is threatening the whole world with catastrophe. But while huge numbers of people suffer and die, some capitalists are focused on getting their share of this enormous sum of money. Who profits from war? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm John Preisner, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for joining us again today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. U.S. aid to Ukraine now totals $100 billion, and it was passed through Congress without hardly any debate. Meanwhile, proposed social programs are routinely dismissed because there is, quote unquote, no money. Why is there such a consensus around war among the U.S. capitalist class? Okay, there are two intertwined answers to that important question. The first one is pretty well known, but is worth briefly going over again. We have been a militarily obsessed country since at least the end of World War II. The United States leaders from both parties have repeatedly said that the United States insists on being the most heavily armed, weaponized military force in the world. That's why we never really ended the armaments program that was built up in World War II, even though that war was over. It's why we have kept on growing our military budget now approaching $1 trillion per year. That's why the world is fond of showing us the graph in which the United States spends on its military more each year than the next nine countries combined do. And those nine countries include Russia and China, and then the other seven are allies of the United States, to make the overwhelming militarization all the more obvious. So the first reason to understand all of this is it has to do with maintaining basically the American empire, the police force that whether it's in Asia or Africa or Latin America or Europe, 
will be the force that dominates, often without having to go to war, just by the threat that this kind of military force will be unleashed on you. And we can see that even in the wars that the United States lost, like the Vietnam War, or the Korean War, or the war in Afghanistan, the United States was ejected from all of those countries. It was defeated. The whole world knows it, even if for Americans, it's kind of difficult to face. But that didn't matter in the sense that the lesson was learned. If you cross the United States, a level of destruction will be unleashed on your country that you would not want, if you were even the least bit decent, you would not want to bring upon anything, especially your own country. So it's been a way of building and maintaining the American empire, taking over from the role that used to be played by the British Empire. The second and different reason is financial. The government spends a trillion dollars on defense. This means that huge numbers of the American people are working at jobs whose ultimate result is a product sold to the United States government. And so those jobs depend on the government. All of those jobs are either working for the government, that's a relatively small number, or working for all the private employers producing for the government, that's the big number. Those producers, those companies, the profits that they earn, the high executive salaries that they pay, those all depend on the government shelling out the trillion dollars a year we are now at. All of those executives, all of those employers, and a good number of the workers too, become advocates for the defense budget. They become supporters of giving money to the defense department because that money trickles down into their pockets as corporate executives, shareholders, and even some at the bottom to the employees. They're the chorus supporting defense spending. They're the chorus making it true what you said, that the money for Ukraine was passed without much conversation, whereas helping unwed mothers get some help for daycare centers so they can go to work is a big item for contention among our quote-unquote leaders. So this is a system that has adapted its governmental spending, its rules of behavior to build and to support and to sustain an empire. The problem is that the empire is running into troubles, as all empires in the history of the world have. Of every empire, it can be said, it was born, it evolved over time, and then it died away. There's no reason, if that's true for the Greek, the Roman, the Persian, the Ottoman, the British, the Dutch empires, that it won't be true for the American empire. 
And the result is the usual decline, division, social tension, lost wars, and then the big one, the emergence of another power heralding the arrival of the next empire. And right now, the whole world believes that will be China. The United States believes it too. That's why we are threatening in the Taiwan Straits. That's why the war against Russia in Ukraine. These are attempts to limit, to stop, to thwart, to slow down the rise of China. That's the economic issue. And in the end, that's what's going to decide the outcome, how the world is going to manage the decline of the U.S. empire already underway and the arrival of another one, which may or may not act differently from the empires of the past. Building on what you've said, you know, without the U.S. being engaged in constant military adventures, these weapons manufacturers simply wouldn't survive. And politicians often talk about government assistance as something to be ashamed of. Isn't it ironic that these major corporations are almost entirely dependent on government support and taxpayer money? Yeah, the irony is, for me, always most glaring on or around the 4th of July, when these executives get up and talk about how hard they work and the American dream and carefully scripting what they say as if they did it not only without the government support, but somehow despite the government. They portray the government as some kind of fumbling, bumbling irrelevancy. It's all about them and entrepreneurs and private enterprise. So yeah, it's more than a little ironic that in order to sustain their empire, they have had to build the government up, making it more and more of a dominant influence on the economy. And by the way, it's not just shown in the enormous dependence of so many industries on the military spending, but look at the recent years when it's become grotesque. Mr. Trump imposed on China tariffs that made all the goods coming from China have to pay a tax to the United States to be entered into the American economy. Well, that tax was passed on to the American people. So the price of everything went up, beginning in that way the inflation that still hammers at the standard of living we all have. Look at Mr. Trump, now followed by Mr. Biden, going after subsidizing American companies in the hopes that they can compete more effectively with their Chinese counterparts. But giving all that money to the chip manufacturers, which they just finished doing, leaves the chip manufacturers able to use that money whatever way they want. Pay out more dividends to the rich shareholders? Sure. Pay higher salaries to their executives? Sure. Move production from the United States to Mexico? Maybe. Who knows? 
in our free enterprise system, the government is now picking and choosing winners and losers. What companies will get subsidies? What won't? You can be very sure that the companies looking for them are telling their senators and representatives, you better get the government to help us or we'll go find a replacement for you in Washington. The whole role of the government has become the controller, the director, the father, the patron of American capitalism. It talks a big deal about private enterprise, but it is rushing as fast as it can to Washington, D.C., no longer just to bail them out every time their private enterprise system crashes, like in 2000 like in 2008, like in 2020, like in the case of the pandemic. No, not just for emergencies do they depend on the government, but even for the day-to-day operation of the economy, it's now a government dominated economic system, and that was brought to you with enthusiasm by the same corporate executives who will give that speech on the 4th of July about how private enterprise is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It is a fraud, the whole argument, and should not be taken seriously by anyone. Thanks, Professor Wolf. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Really a disgusting state of affairs that we're in. I'm hoping next that we could talk a little bit about some of the historical context of how we got to this situation that we're in now in the United States. As you know, what really ended the Great Depression was World War II. And after the end of the war, there was deep concern that the economy would slip back into crisis. Can you talk a little bit about this and what followed and how it led us to where we are today? Sure. First of all, let me pick up on that history because very, very important. Remember that the Great Depression is called that because it was the greatest collapse of the capitalist system on a global scale in the history of the capitalist system. It begins in October of 1929, and it is not over until 1940-41. That means we're talking 11 plus years of the greatest collapse. In 1933, the unemployment rate official in the United States was 25%, many, many times what the unemployment rate is today, for example. One in four American workers was without a job because we did not have unemployment compensation in those days, because we did not have a minimum wage in those days. Those were all things forced on the United States government by an enraged working class suffering through the Great Depression. It was a horrible, horrible time. The great novels of that time, The Grapes of Wrath of Mice and Men and many others are documents of how horrible it was. Every family in America was afflicted by the unemployed either having lost their jobs or being burdens on the shaky jobs of the rest of the family or borrowing money from people who had none to lend, it was gruesome. So yeah, when the government realized that the whole system was in danger, it was also a time when we had the greatest growth and surge of the American labor movement in the history of that movement. Millions of people joined unions who had never done so before, 
people whose parents had never been in a union. We had the strongest socialist and communist parties in the history of the United States. Hundreds of thousands of Americans joined those parties, worked together with the union movement, and they brought us Social Security, the first minimum wage, unemployment compensation, federal jobs programs. They really made a difference. And so at the end of that depression, when it looked like we might be sliding back, what saved us, as you rightly say, was going into war. Here's what the war did. It took half the unemployed people who still numbered in the many millions. It took half of them and put them in a uniform. And it took the other half and put them in factories making the uniforms. We solved, quote unquote, the unemployment problem by under entering World War II. And so, of course, when that war was over five years later in 1945, the great anxiety was what might happen, which would be we would slide back in to the Great Depression that we had been in before the war began. And so a whole raft of steps were taken. People may not know American history the way they ought to, but steps were taken in 1945, 46, even into 47, desperately trying to prevent that sliding back. Here's just a sample of what was done. We developed the GI Bill of Rights. You may not know this, but we said to every returning soldier, the United States government will pay all the costs for you to go to college. Millions of Americans who came from families that had never sent anyone to college suddenly had a window to a better future. Provided by private enterprise? Not at all. Provided by the government. And it did that not only to give workers a chance at an education, but it also meant those people would now no longer be, here we go, competing for scarce jobs. They wouldn't be counted as unemployed because they were going to college on the government's dime. It was an anti-unemployment program, very bold. We had the greatest house building program. And you know who built the houses? That's right, the government funded the money. We built the interstate road system, the roads we all now use if we travel long distances, I this and I that for interstate. The government paid for the roads. It put millions of people to work, not just in building and maintaining the roads, an enormous project that took many years. But without that, we wouldn't have an automobile industry. It's important to understand the economics of the automobile industry because it was the biggest industry in the post-war period. Automobiles could never have gotten, if you pardon the pun, off the ground unless there were roads. Nobody would buy a car if you had to drive it over the rocks and hills and fallen trees in the woods. But the car companies could not sell the car if the cost of the car included the cost of the road that the car would travel on. 
So the government built the roads, which was a massive subsidy to the car industry. It could now sell cars, make a fat profit, because the government took the building of the roadway off their hands. Just to give you an idea, that was not done for the railroads. In the railroads, they had to build the locomotive, the cars, and the trackway on which those cars rolled. That was an expense for the railroad companies. We removed that for the automobile companies. That's why automobiles were the center of American life and culture after World War II. Government subsidy. Well, the most contentious of the government programs at first was the military. The war was over. We didn't want more war. We didn't want to invite more war. There were strong feelings across America that we shouldn't have entered the war and we should not ever go to war again. Wars are terrible. Wars are destructive and they rarely solve anything. So you had to develop a support system for maintaining war and the war machine. Because by the end of World War II, much of American industry was dependent on war orders. Again, including the automobile companies who made the tanks and the jeeps and all the other vehicles that war requires. And so steadily those industries, seeing how important the government would be and how big its spending would be, you developed a whole lobby. It's what President Eisenhower later called the military-industrial complex of companies scattered across all of our states, working hard on the representatives in Washington to keep that defense budget big and fat so that the money would roll into those corporations and then trickle down to jobs for those at the bottom. And we built a system of dependence on the government so that no politician, hardly any of them, dares vote against the military budget because they'll have angry businessmen and women, angry workers who have been persuaded by the businessmen and women that they better get on board squeezing the politicians or else their jobs and their incomes will be lost. It's a whole system devoted to that. And while we may be horrified by the massive killing and destruction in Ukraine, half of which is accomplished by American weapons sent there for that purpose, while we may be horrified, you can be sure they're drinking champagne in the companies that make all of that equipment because when the government buys it from them and sends it into destruction in Ukraine, it'll all have to be replaced by more of the tanks and artillery shells and all the rest of it. And that's business for them. And they don't see very often much beyond the business. That facing the morality of what they're doing, that comes later or toward the end of life if it comes at all. So no, we have an economic system heavily dependent on the government 
And the easiest outlay the government ever has is for defense. Nobody, hardly at all, speaks or dares to speak against it, particularly not the folks in Congress who vote on it. Easier to get a defense appropriation passed than anything else the government does. It's a testimony to the way this system has ended up building an empire to control the world only to discover that the empire in the end enslaves the very people who set it up. Slaves to spending more and more on destruction and having a harder and harder time spending on what determines the quality of life for the people of the country. It's an extraordinary story about how empires often meet their end. So in our last five minutes or so here, I want to see if you can really drive a point home that you've talked about already, but want to emphasize this, that, you know, even though it's the military contractors who benefit the most directly from war and war spending, corporations across the board benefit from the status of the United States as the top world power. So at this point, capitalism and empire in the United States are really inseparable from each other. Is that right? It is, but it is changing literally as we talk. More and more of the world is changing its attitude. It used to be as you described it. You dare not offend the United States. If they want you to pay more for something, you better do it. If they want you to borrow from them in a certain way, you better do it. You better vote the way they want in the UN, whatever it is. The problem now is the new emerging empire of China and China's ally, Russia, and the ally of China and Russia, India, and I could go on, Iran, Turkey, more and more, so that the rest of the world is beginning to have a new problem. Yeah, we don't want to offend the United States, but we dare not offend China and Russia either. They are becoming as important, as powerful, and as big economic realities. And of course, here I'm talking mostly about China, not Russia. And so they're making a new set of calculations. And you can be very sure that even in places like London, Rome, Paris, Berlin, the same recognition is beginning to dawn on them. They are wondering, have we thrown in our lot with the United States out of a habit of doing it for the last 70 years? Should we rethink where we are going and who we have to please? Three days ago, the French government announced a trip of their president Macron to Beijing shortly. He wants to make clear to the Chinese, don't equate us with the United States. We have our own fish to fry. We have our own deals to make. Our future depends on trading and dealing with you, and we know it, and we respect it. And if the United States pushes us too hard, we may switch altogether. For the time being, we want to deal with you both. So don't either of you threaten us. You're not in a position. The Chinese are not quite there yet, and the Americans 
better not push what their situation is because the direction from them is not the future. That lies in the East. And we're all going to be living through a rethinking and a recalculation that is not going to favor the United States. And the real question is, how gracefully, how peacefully will the United States function in the years ahead as it's declining? Because it's a very different story from the last 75 years when the United States was on the upswing. All upswings are followed by downswings. It's just a question of how prepared you are to adjust to a changing reality. Well, that's all the time we have today. Again, we've been joined by Professor Richard Wolff. He's the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.